presented. She's not here. She dropped. And so um, that's partly why it's important for us to hear it because the first audience would have been hearing it and hearing it not just in a monotone way, but in a very dramatic way. Um, and so, not that I try to be overly dramatic uh, in my reading, but I could be if that was something that was helpful. Change voices and stuff. Okay, never mind. So we are in 26 of uh, Matthew's gospel. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster, alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher has teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, sour, sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me, will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas would betray him. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of, the fruit, of this fruit of the vine until the day, that day, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss, I will kiss, is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching you, and you did not seize me. But this, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with 
Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, uh, swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So, we have this long section of narrative transpiring before us. And the first thing I want to point out is, Matthew uses this tool throughout his gospel. And every time there's a big section of Jesus talking, he transitions into the next section by saying this phrase, when Jesus had finished. So, for example, if we flip back, okay, if you want to flip back with me to uh, chapter 19, after his uh, discussion about who is the greatest, he says, now when Jesus had finished these sayings. And then if you flip back just a couple more pages, okay, uh, in 1353, and when Jesus had finished these parables, and it, it's, it's this theme that's been happening after the Sermon on the Mount. He says, and when Jesus had finished these sayings, he moved on to do this. So Matthew is using this rhetorical device to help the listener to say, okay, now we've moved on into this new next phase. The other thing that maybe you uh, picked up on it, maybe you didn't, we talked about it last week. This phrase, son of man, uh, is repeated over and over and over throughout this uh, section that we just read tonight. Part of that is, again, I think Matthew is trying to communicate and Jesus is trying to drive home the humanity that is in Jesus. And even if we just skip ahead just a little bit, um, we just read it, so it's not really skipping ahead. When he's uh, asked by Caiaphas, Caiaphas says, "You are the son of God. Are you the son of God?" And Jesus says that he is the son of man. He says, "You will now uh, see the son of man." And again, when we look at if we look at Matthew as this mirrored image or this perfect parabolic shape, we see a lot of reflection of what we saw early in Matthew's gospel that we now see at the end of Matthew's gospel, and that is not a mistake. So Jesus, um, we have this movement uh, towards uh, the Passover, and Matthew drops in this story about the anointing of Jesus by this woman. Now, it's interesting because, uh, and, and John and I were talking about this earlier today, and we were talking about this this morning, the other gospel writers have this chronologically in a different place. And if you remember back to Palm Sunday, John preached on this uh, same account, not from Matthew, uh, it was from Mark, right? I think, I think that's what it was. And, and so 
we scratch our heads and say, why is Matthew dropping this story of the anointing of Jesus in this place? And then we say, well, what do we do with the disjointedness of it within the chronological outlay of Jesus? Well, Matthew, when you look at the text, he isn't trying to portray this as chronological. He simply makes a reference and he says, when Jesus was at Bethany. So he isn't saying that Jesus, this is happening right now. He's saying, let me tell you a story about when this did happen at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, which is consistent with what Mark says. But again, we see this. Imagine this, okay? So you're the first audience, and you've heard these stories about Jesus, and, and someone's recounting this, this gospel of Matthew, maybe Matthew himself, and he says, first of all, he says, now Jesus was in the home of a leper. Like if you have dozed off, because, I mean, we're, a, we're like well into this, and sometimes we doze off. I mean, it's been a long day. I mean, hypothetically speaking, sometimes you doze off. I mean, sometimes it happens, hypothetically, that someone has dozed off in here. Um, I, I totally get it. I, it would be me if I wasn't speaking. It's hard to fall asleep when you're talking. But the story is going along, and then you hear that Jesus enters this house of this leper, and you're like, wait, wait a second. How is it that Jesus, the Messiah, is in the home of this leper? Well, chances are he's no longer a leper. He's been healed. And then we enter this female. And again, we have been talking throughout Matthew's gospel about these females that function within the story and very prominently within Jesus' life and in a very positive way. And so she comes forward, and notice we get the similar vein of indignancy. Is that a word? Is that you think so? Okay. Remember when the, when the, the children were trying to come to Jesus and the disciples were not happy? We get that same idea that the, the disciples are not happy and Jesus, in essence, he rebukes them. And he talks about what a beautiful thing that this woman has done because she sees who he is and she sees what he's doing. And again, we have this character, this woman, who is able to clearly see the importance of Jesus and the importance of what Jesus is about to do in his death. And so Matthew wants us to say, okay, Jesus sees it, she sees it, can we see it? Can we see what he is about to do? Because notice the contrast. In one section of verses, Jesus is being anointed by this person, by this woman, who has given this huge gift to Jesus and literally, right after that, what happens? You can look at your Bible. Judas betrays him. Like, we go from the anointing of Jesus by a female. Again, the, we, we can so often miss this. She shouldn't have done, she shouldn't have been in this proximity to Jesus. And, and so... 
she gets it. And the people that should get it, the 12 that are closest to him, are doing the opposite of anointing him by betraying him. And if Judas really cared about the giving to the poor, why is he trying to get this money for the betrayal of Jesus? And then they move into the Passover. And again, you see these Matthew's use of this and now and now and now. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, they move into the Passover. And Jesus just lays it out. There was Steve Dahl. That was for him. Perfect pun. They're reclining at table and he just lays it out. Okay, he's laughing at home. I can hear him from here. But notice... Again, when we think about this imagery, <laughs> we so often think of Da Vinci's Last Supper, right? And it's like the 12, they're all spread out, or, you know, it's like this perfect, it's like we're at this banquet, and they're all sitting facing the camera or the painter. Except that's not how it would have been. It would have been this U-shaped table, and they would have all been laying on the floor and laying on each other, and so when we think about this idea of reclining at table, we don't quite fully have the image. Like in our house, Nikki used to love to say, well, let's have, let's have a picnic dinner, which means like we're going to clear out the, the coffee table, we're going to lay out a blanket, and we're going to lay on the floor and eat. That's what's happening. They're, in essence, they're laying on the floor so that they are in very close proximity to each other. And notice what's happening within this Passover meal. They're all eating out of the same dishes and drinking out of the same cups. And Jesus, again, says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, meaning Jesus is going to be killed. And then he goes and we get uh, the response of Judas Notice, how does Judas respond to Jesus? What does he refer to Jesus as? Rabbi. Like, that's the understatement of the year. <laughs> or maybe of, like, you know, all A.D. <laughs> Judas doesn't even see Jesus for who he is as the Messiah. He's referring to him just as teacher. So, again... When we look at the context of this, we have the Lord's uh, first communion. And what is sandwiched on, what is the, the first communion sandwiched by? The declaration of the betrayal of, G, of Judas, betrayal by Judas, and the denial of Peter. So, Oftentimes when we come to the Lord's table, we just drop right in to where it's at. And we don't really set in our own minds the magnitude of what Jesus is doing. So he has his, his A number one disciple. We've talked about Peter before and how he's constantly sticking his neck out and he's constantly making mistakes. And yet Jesus is constantly forgiving him and he keeps taking risks and doing these things. And Jesus knows that Peter is going to deny him. And he has just predicted that Judas is going to betray him. And in the middle of that, what does he do? 
They're all laying down, sitting, sitting, laying down together. And he says, I have this perfect opportunity. And I want to give you one of the most lasting, impactful memories that you will have virtually every single day of your life moving forward. And he takes these common elements that would have been a part of the Passover, and he says, what are these things? These things represent my body and my blood. And what are they to do? They are to grant the forgiveness of sins. And when we think about the magnitude of the betrayal of Jesus and the denial of Jesus, and in the middle Jesus says, and I'm going to forgive, and I'm doing something that is so profound that it doesn't matter what you have done to me, I'm going to continue to move forward to providing a pathway for reconciliation for anyone who is willing to come. And when you partake, I want you to remember these things. And now we can talk loads about church history and how we have debated over this and questioned this. And you know, even the early church Christians were accused of being cannibals. Because they're like, yeah, we're eating the body and blood of Jesus. I mean, that's a weird saying. And the challenge that it, that that we can come across is when we lift this out of context and when we place it in our modern times and we debate what's happening at our communion table, we can misunderstand what's happening at this communion table. Because not a single one of the disciples would have thought that they were eating Jesus' actual body and blood. Like, when he takes the bread and breaks it and he takes the cup and says, eat this and drink this, not one of them would have thought, well, this is really weird because, like, you're still there. And so part of the challenge for us is we sit on this side of the resurrection, and, and so we can tend to get muddied up into what communion is. But it's, it causes us to take a moment and to really reflect on our own experience with communion. And not that it's right or it's wrong in how we've done it in the past or how we do it in the future or how other people do it or how other people don't do it. You know, growing up, you know, we did the old crackers and juice and passed the thing and, and then, it, you know, sometimes it's just like you just did it because that's what you did on the first Sunday because we were a North American Baptist church and and we, we lose the reverence of it. And then you come back to this and you say, imagine for the disciples, and we're not there yet, but I, spoiler alert, Jesus is going to be crucified next week. Yeah, I know. Sorry, I ruined it, right? Spoiler alert. Sorry. But you have this experience around the table and then you see him be crucified. And you see that Jesus was trying to make a lasting point and saying, when you see this broken bread and this cup of wine, remember how much this cost. And I know for me personally, 
so often it, it just be, it has become a rote thing and we don't often take the time to really remember and remember the magnitude and the true cost of what Jesus gave. Like, yep, body, blood, yep, sounds good. No, he's giving this imagery of his full human self has been given for us. And so when we come together to the table, that's what we're remembering, is this pathway to reconciliation comes at an immense cost to the physical body of Jesus. And that's one of the reasons why I think we see this emphasis on the Son of Man and the humanity of Jesus as Matthew moves towards the conclusion of his gospel. Likewise, notice when Jesus chooses to do this. He does it when they're all together in this very communal setting. And, and they're, they're dipping their hands together into the food and then they take and they take the bread and they dip their hands and they're eating because it's about the communal aspect of what happens. And, and I, I know that we can become somewhat hyper-individualistic. Like this is between me and God. Except that's not what's happening here. This is very much about what's happening with the body of Christ coming together. And so that has been part of the impetus of how do we slow down and take this process of eating and drinking communion together in a very meaningful and tangible way. And I, I would love, I wish I could sit in all of your groups and, just, and hear about your own communion experiences throughout your life and how your view of communion has maybe uh, adapted with your various experience of different communion forms. And then Jesus goes and he's like, oh, and by the way, uh, Peter, you're going to deny me. Obviously, Peter doesn't like that. And then they go from there into the garden. And again, we see this vivid imagery of the humanity of Jesus on display. He even says to his disciples that he is experiencing, he says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. And remember when we started at the beginning of Matthew, we were talking about the, the lineage of Jesus and whether or not Jesus was God's son and the sonship of Jesus. And notice he says, my father, he makes this intimate, personal, fatherly address to God and says, if it is possible. And, and I don't want us to miss this. Jesus' humanity is on full display. He's not real excited about being crucified. He's like, if there's any other way, and notice the hints that exist within his prayer all the way back to when he starts the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus implements the Lord's Prayer, what does he say at the end? Yes, your will be done. 
that, see that echo from the very beginning of Matthew and Jesus says, this is how you pray. And then he's in the garden. He knows he's going to be crucified. He doesn't want it to happen. He is sorrowful and exhausted. And he can't imagine what he's about to experience. And he says, God, your will be done. And so he teaches his disciples how to pray. And then he actually prays in the way that he has taught them to pray. And it's fascinating because how often is it the case that we just don't do things because we don't really want to? And notice, again, we see this echo of pray that you will not fall into temptation. Again, this echo going all the way back to the temptation or the testing of Jesus in the beginning. And they can't even stay awake. To which I'm like, I once got fired by my stepmom because I kept falling asleep at the front desk of the Yankton Inn when I was doing night audit. So I'm like, when I read the story, I'm like, yeah, that'd be me. I, you know, when it's 10 o'clock uh, or 9, I mean, depending on how, vertic- or how horizontal my body is, sometimes it's just, it's over. Nikki had, and I had to implement a policy early on in our marriage. It'd be 10 o'clock and she, we'd be, you know, in bed. I mentioned we were married, so that's okay. And she'd want to start talking about, like, serious stuff. And then she would ask me the dreaded question, what did I just say? <gasps> uh, you just said whatever. We'll talk about it in the morning. And I'm like, well, I'm awake now. Too late. And I was like, yeah, it was too late. We couldn't talk about this. So I said, 10 p.m., I'm a pumpkin, no hard discussion. I mean, unless there's something I, never mind. And Jesus asks them to be there for him, and they can't do it. And so his humanity is on display, and their humanity is on display. And then notice what happens. Judas shows up with the crowd. And what is Jesus' response? He says, do what you came to do. And now Matthew doesn't tell us that it was Peter who pulls out the sword. He just which is kind of interesting because he hasn't exactly shown the best light on Peter throughout this gospel. He just says one of the disciples pulls out his sword and lops off the ear. He also doesn't mention that Jesus heals the guy, which you're like, hey, that's kind of an important thing, I think. Why'd you leave that out? Okay, that's a different discussion. But notice what Jesus says. He says, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Does that sound familiar? Way back to the testing of Jesus in the, in the wilderness? And we encounter this Very challenging passage for us. Well, for some of us. Because Jesus, again, chooses to do the opposite. 
He chooses to do the opposite of what the human response or the worldly response is. Because the human response and the worldly response is clearly on display when Peter or the unnamed disciple pulls out his sword and becomes physically aggressive. And Jesus is not. And I know we've talked about this in here. The way of Jesus is not physical aggression. The way of Jesus is not using weaponry to defend himself. And I know this is really hard. Oh, this is so hard. And, and I've talked about this and thought about this for decades, literally for decades. And we wrestle with how Jesus functions and, and what do we do with the pacifism that Jesus seems to have happened and his nonviolent approach to, to how his attackers are coming at him. And the response is, well, of course, because he wants to be arrested and he wants to be crucified because he needs to be crucified. Explaining why Jesus does what he does doesn't give us license to excuse our own behavior and overinterpret what Jesus may have done to foster our own desire for physical aggression in the present. And I know that the question becomes, so Eric, what you're telling me is if somebody were to break into your house tonight, and were to physically assault you, your wife, your kids, that you would just lay down and take it? I don't know. Probably not. What I do know is Jesus makes it very clear He says, those who take the sword will perish by the sword. And so we really have to wrestle with that. And the thing that I love about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's ethics book, in a lot of ways, is his non-answers to questions. <laughs> it's very inspiring for me. Because what is the says in his ethics the question is not what is right or wrong, but what is the will of God for my life? I mean, this is the guy that tries to assassinate Adolf Hitler. So he's aware of the importance, or let me rephrase that. He's aware of the, phys the human desire to inflict violence on other people. But when we hear these words of Jesus, oh, it's just, ah. Uh. And often the most complex situations in faith and life don't come with easy answers. They come with complex answers and so much more gray than black and white, and it makes us so uncomfortable. 
It makes us so uncomfortable. And, and as we read these words, I want us to consider if we are to be called into a cruciform, Christ-like life as disciples of Jesus. And if Jesus says, if you want to carry a sword, you will die by that sword, I choose not to do that. Then how do we embody the life of Christ today? And yeah, we can have loads of, of specific scenarios in our homes. And, and it's so hard. It's so hard. And I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about military. I'm not talking about the police. I'm not talking about those things because I'm not a police officer. And I'm so grateful for my police officers and the Crow Wing County sheriffs, and I'm grateful for the protection of all of, you know, this highway patrol, all these things. What I'm asking myself is, how do I hear the words of Jesus and then behave in my life in response to this? And I know, as Jesus just said, he talks about the flesh and the spirit. And again, Paul talks about the flesh and the spirit in Galatians, in his letter to the Galatians. And I know that my response to physical aggression is aggression. Tom and I were together. Miami was playing uh, against the Nebraska Cornhuskers, and it was a fabulous game, and we're all amped up, and Miami loses in the end, and, and I'm like one of 25 Miami fans in, in Memorial Stadium, and we're walking out together on our way to get Runza that was closed, and we pulled into the drive-thru, which was cru- more, almost as crushing as the Miami loss, and this guy turns around and starts lipping off to me about Miami And as I go to move forward, Tom just grabs my shirt and says, not right now. (laughs) So I know, I know where my flesh is at. And I know that these words of Jesus are so clear and challenging. And then he goes before the council and he's, He's all of a sudden, he's very silent. Remember a few weeks ago when we talked about him ramping up and becoming more assertive as he approached the Pharisees because he knows what's important for him. And remember uh, when he and the disciples are leaving, okay? It, It was where we were at last week. They're leaving the temple in 24 and what he said about the temple. And then notice those words come back to haunt him. In 24, it doesn't talk about the, the, the building back of the temple in three days, but it talks about the destruction of the temple. And that here is what ends up getting him arrested by the, these witnesses. And Caiaphas wants to get the truth. And notice Jesus is intentionally ambiguous. You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Which is 
the most powerful non-answer answer I think that there could be. It's so powerful that it ends up getting him arrested and sentenced to death. And then we go into this denial of, of Jesus by Peter, and so often is the case that we're like, we rail on Peter, except notice, where are the other disciples? They gone. Bye, Felicia. Peace out. We gone. They don't want anything to do with this. And Peter is like, I, I don't want to be too close, but I want to be close. And so he's in this spot, and, and he's wrestling with, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And he's so certain that he's not going to do what Jesus has already said he could do, which is so ironic. It's like, if you believe Jesus is the Messiah and he tells you something's going to happen, you're like, no. And then, of course, it happens. And it's interesting because We say this phrase, Peter denies Jesus. That's the title. And it's more truthfully that, that Peter denies his connection with Jesus. Because Peter, Peter's Denial to being connected to Jesus does ha- it has no influence on Jesus. It doesn't cause any harm or foul to Jesus. It's only about Peter and his uh, personal life. But it begs the question, what does it look like for me to deny Jesus? And when has there been times when I have encountered something and I choose to deny Jesus' connection in my life, or whether it's outwardly with my mouth or outwardly with my actions. You know, we're driving down 35, and I'm trying to get on 694, and this guy won't let me in, and I speed up, and Nikki says, you are in my work truck with Copper Creek on the side. You need to knock it off. <laughs> it wasn't like you were a follower of Jesus Christ and you're behaving like you aren't one. <laughs> but how often is it the case that, that we deny our allegiance to Jesus, not with our words, but with our actions? All right, you can go to your discussion groups and feel free to join together.